Well, it's a delight to be with you. What an opportunity to have the special privilege of talking to the most auspicious group of the Lord's people connected with the brethren. It's a delight and a special joy to have this privilege. It's, a, uh, it's an awesome responsibility. I, I thought after they asked me if I would come that uh, probably I would get a call and say, you know, uh, um, uh, we've decided that there is another speaker that um, will take care of this subject. So the call never came. So here I am. You people have asked me, why, aren't you, why don't you come to these conferences? Well, the reason we don't come to these conferences is because I've been on the other side of the world in October for the last 35, 30 years. And God has given us a ministry of um, ministering to missionaries. That's not something we wanted to do. Paul said the Lord pushed him into the ministry, said he counted him faithful. Uh, I can't take that part of the verse. But he did push us into this ministry. People say, you've been to so many countries. Um, where would you go if you could go any place in the world? Home! <laughs> we had 27 flights in one of those trips. Can you imagine? We changed beds 75 times in one of those trips. I wrote a letter, I wrote a little article on sleeping with missionaries. Now that's not what you think. <laughs> it's just that, um, I mean, the beds we've slept in, <laughs> it's amazing that that has been the case. And so, we are, I am, my wife apologizes for not being here. She had two ladies' Bible studies this week and a number of other things to take care of. So we came down by myself. And so uh, just, I'm just blessed to be here. I really have appreciated the ministry that has sort of put together a, a mosaic on this great subject. Uh, interestingly enough, <laughs> there is the, the subject that's in your bulletin is a very liberal paraphrase. It's probably an NIV of, uh, of what I agreed to speak on. <laughs> so uh, that's okay. You know, the old hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. I dare not trust the NIV nor even read The Living Bee. On KJV alone I stand. <laughs> All other versions come from man. <laughs> so... Um, uh, that's a liberal prayer phrase. Not, not that we're not going to get to the sword of the Spirit, and, uh, but we, we'll get there eventually. In fact, we, I think of changing the subject, and we'll uh, talk on fasting. That'll give me an extra hour to speak. Because when I go to India, they expect you to speak for a couple of hours, you know. Uh, so that's the case. And um, as long as there's going to be a book push, we'll do a book push, Okay. I don't know whether you know, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. I have, been, I have had the opportunity of being involved in what I would say would be three primary uh, revival experiences. And I just want to just, not, not that that gives me any credibility, but there are three of them. When I was in high school, we were living in Wheaton College, and there was an amazing uh, movement of the Spirit of God through, uh, through Wheaton College. And I was just in high school, I was about 16 years old, and I was, I was struggling with a few things. I had a black leather jacket, couldn't afford a motorcycle, uh, and a few other things. But the Lord was dealing with me, and He was trying to get me. And I went each night from 
as soon as I could leave school until two or three in the morning at, uh, at the auditorium in Wheaton College. And there was a parade, a parade of young men and young women going down the aisle and coming up and standing here. And with tears in their eyes and with sorrow, they confessed their sin. And they had prayer meetings and, and just revival was astonishing. And it swept through Wheaton College. And there were some choruses and hymns. Uh, there was a tavern in the town, but the college burned it down. <laughs> and that was the, that was the result of this amazing, and the Lord touched my life at that point. And I had landed up where you were sitting on a Sunday morning, and a man came to our assembly, and he was, he was 96 years old. This was just a few weeks later. And his message was, who's going to take my place? And the finger of the law came and touched my life and said, you, I was 16 years old. I didn't know what I'd said. <laughs> I just said, Lord, here I am. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go where you want me. I had no idea what that meant. But that revival that took place in Wheaton College stirred my heart. Two weeks later, a man came to me from our assembly, and he says, I go down to the street corners of Chicago. And he said, I preach the gospel. I want you to come. I had just two weeks earlier said, Lord, here am I. You know, a lot of people say, here am I, send my brother. <laughs> and I said, Lord, here am I. And he said, I'll give you as long as you need to prepare a message. I shall never forget it. <laughs> and at 16, I stood in the street corners of Chicago and began preaching in the missions in Chicago. That was the first. The second one, the second revival that I would use in my own life as we were living in California, I had been drafted by the army. They asked me where I wanted to, or what I wanted to do. I said, "Well, a chaplain's assistant." I just finished a mass. I knew everything. I learned a lot after that. <laughs> and uh, they put me in the military police. <laughs> so they asked me, "Where do you want to serve?" Jenny's my wife's family. I lived in New Jersey, so I said, "How about California?" They said, you're on your way to California. <laughs> so we were there. And a number of us young men who were the same age were getting together, spiritually concerned, praying for the assemblies, trying to impact. And we invited a man to come to, our, uh, to an, uh, a conference. It was actually a convention. And we wanted to impact the young people. He came. He stayed with us. And he impacted my life in a way that has nothing else has with the exception of my conversion. And he brought into my life, through the Word of God and through his preaching, the fullness of Christ, the blessing of Christ. He taught me. He, he poured his life into me in a way that no other man had. And he said, you have everything in Christ. You have Christ. Because you have Christ, you have His presence. You have His power. You have His hope. You have His love. You have His joy. Those are resources that are yours. And it transformed my thinking. It was a personal revival. We haven't talked much about that this week. But it was a personal revival. And it changed my preaching. It changed my prayer life. 
And it changed the view that I had of the victory that God got at the cross, that Christ purchased at the cross and distributed to me through the resurrection. And it became a passionate message, a passionate message that has flowed through my ministry to missionaries and wherever I have been carried. I carried that message to an assembly. I'll not tell you where. And the message was on what not to pray. And I said, we don't need to pray for the Lord's presence, but that's the most prevalent prayer in the Christian church. No matter where I've traveled, people say, Lord, be with. Is He with us? I thought you were going to talk to me about it. I say, is the Lord with us? There's a couple. I think I ought to preach the gospel. Because the most profound and simple issue in regard to our salvation is Christ lives in us. All of Christ, all of the Holy Spirit, all of His blessings, all of His resurrection power. And so I preached in this assembly. And um, I got a note from them. And they said, uh, one of our elders... has uh, taken the next two Sundays and they have, um, he has delivered two messages on why we should ask the Lord to be with us. I was stunned. I wrote and asked for a copy of the messages. They never gave them to me. But out of that came this book. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. And I went through the New Testament and I tried to find out what are the blessings that have been given to us in Christ. And I found 500 verses that list blessings that are mine. Because when I have Christ, I have His life. When I have Christ, I have His joy. When I have Christ, I have His peace. When I, <laughs> I can't give you the whole contents of the book. It'll take a while. And so as a result of that, we began to write them out. And I was on one of the ship, OM ships, and they asked me, would I put on the board a daily devotional? And so that was of the Lord. And so I began to write a day's devotion for each day of one of the blessings that is ours in Christ. But many of these blessings are blessings we're still asking for. Because the two most common phrases in prayer by those of us who are servants of the Lord is, Lord, be with us. And Lord, bless us. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. They that be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. And so my suggestion is that we say thank you to God for these blessings. Rather, I don't know whether he cries or he laughs. When we say over and over and over again, Lord, be with the preacher. What does that mean? It means nothing. If the Lord is not with the preacher, he's lost. Why should he be preaching? Well, you say, that's just semantics. I know it's semantics, but I believe in inspiration. (laughs) And if the words of the Lord are right, then our words ought to be as well. And so it's, uh, it's available. And uh, it's also available in Spanish. 
just finished by Unilet about a year ago. And uh, my promise to you is, as I have promised to everybody else, if you can't find them, they're on that half round table right next to the toilet. That was where I was put. And it's in a half round table because it's half priced. And it's right in front of the toilet because it's a great place to read the book. When you sit down and you have, you know, whatever you have, two minutes, whatever it is, to do your business, and you can read this and walk out and say, man, whoo, what a blessing is mine in Christ. And so this is what God has called us to do. And so this one is 10 bucks, and this one is 15 And if you buy them both, you get letters, missionaries never write, which is a primer on praying for missionaries. What do we pray for missionaries? I can tell you. You don't need to tell me. We pray the Lord will be with the missionaries. We pray the Lord will bless the missionaries. We pray the Lord will guide the missionaries. We pray the, and we pray and we pray. And we don't, we're just saying stuff. It's no wonder the prayer meeting is the least attended because we're just repeating ritualistic phrases that say over and over again the same thing. But if you read this faithfully for a year and you don't get your money's worth, you write me and tell me. I'll send you half your money back and you can keep the book. And it also looks good on your, um, on your coffee table because ECS did the cover. The third experience was an experience in Florence, South Carolina. In 1969 and 70, we had a revival in Florence. And that revival in Florence resulted in hundreds, I'm sure thousands, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We used to meet on Monday nights on the grass of the Presbyterian church and two or three people would give, young people would give, all young people, college and high school kids, and they would give their testimonies. And several of us who knew the Lord and, and, and were concerned for spiritual development, we were there. And kids would say, I need to get saved. And we had sharing groups in homes. And there would be families. They would invite all of their extended family and they would come. And two or three would give their testimony of what Christ had done in the last few days. And they'd say, I need the Lord. And somebody would take them back into the bedroom, another one into the kitchen and someplace else. And they would pray and they would receive 40 years. Went. And four years, three or four years ago, we had a 40-year celebration of what God did. And I share those three experiences because I think that there are various views of revival. I can think of revivals in my own life almost, you know, on a monthly or weekly basis. I discover something in the Scripture and say, wow, isn't that thrilling? It's another blessing that God has given me in Christ. And I would like to spend some time on that, but I'm not going to because that's not my subject. But the subject that we have danced around during our time together is my concern, the enemies of revival. The enemies of revival. And I want to read three texts. The first one is found in 1 John chapter 2. You will know these texts and you will be familiar with them. 1 John chapter 2, beginning to read it, verse 15. Do not love the world. That's a command. 
You know, somebody said to me the other day, several weeks, several years ago, you know, we're not under the law, we're under grace. I said, I understand that. I said, how many laws are there in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law? I said, I don't know. I said, there's 613. I said to him, secondly, I said, how many laws or commandments are there in the New Testament? He said, I don't know. I said, there are 719. Seven. Thank you, brother. Who was that said amen? You know, it's amazing. We laugh out loud, but we never say amen. I said, we laugh out loud, but we never say amen to the truth. Whoa. I don't have to train you. You're trained already. 719 commands. Some of them are, you know, are mundane. Greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and so-and-so. But this is a command. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. And then turn over in your Bible to Galatians chapter chapter 5. The book of Galatians chapter 5. I don't ask you to do much work. You'll know that when I get started here. But I will ask you to follow as I read from Galatians chapter 5. Verse 15 says that we bite and devour each other. That's exactly what we've been talking about. We're divided. We destroy each other. We argue. We fight. And yet we belong in the same body of Christ. Why do we shoot ourselves in the foot in the midst of our ministry? But 16 say, but 15 says, um, I'm sorry, 16, I say then walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts or desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, nor the works of the flesh are these. What a mess! Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfishness, ambition, and dissension, and heresies, and envy, and murders, and drunkenness, and revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things, not who do them, but those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, my. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, Envying one another over one book to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, you know where I am going. Ephesians chapter 6, verse, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. That is a command. It doesn't say ask for strength. 
It says, use the strength you've got. Do you see the difference? We say again, Lord, strengthen me, strengthen him, strengthen. And we're talking about believers. And the Lord says to us, be strong in the strength that I have given to you. It is ours. Resurrection power is ours. And we stand there asking the Lord for strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Do we have Christ? Yes. Do we have His might? Yes. And it's repeated a score of times that the resources which belong to Christ belong to me. When I have Christ... I have everything that's found in Christ. And it is prayers of appropriation in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Romans that help us understand that the fullness of Christ is mine. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What did you say? I'm glad it goes on. Because it goes on to say, and you are filled full in Him. How astonishing that God has given me Christ. doesn't make me God, but it makes it possible for me to be godly because His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to glory and virtue. The power to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Take the whole armor of God. Verse 7, 14. Stand therefore. Verse 15. Your feet shod. Verse 16. Taking the shield of faith by which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. How many? All. What's the instrument? The shield of faith. And he goes on to say, take the, t- uh, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with perseverance and supplication for all saints, hyphen. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe that every good gift and every perfect gift has been given to us by You. We thank You that all the resources for life as You intended for us to live have been given to us in Christ. We have gazed upon Him over these two days, seen Him in His ministry, seen Him this morning in His passion, and our hearts were stunned. Our hearts were brought to to quietness in the presence of a Savior who loved us and who died for us. We thank You for the resurrection. Oh God, how great is this event when you raised Him from the dead and raised us from the dead with Him. You seated Him at your own right hand and you have seated us with Him in heavenly places. 
we are gloriously provided for. And we offer you our thanks for your Holy Spirit who takes the things of Christ and shows them unto us. We glory in Him who is all things to us, our beloved Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. I think we've been talking about revival particularly as it relates to conversion. Do I need to stand over here? I'm, okay. That's good. Great. Because I'd like to just go down there. I've got to stay here. You can see I'm a wanderer. But I want to get in touch with people. I want to see their eyes. I want to be able to communicate to them. Here he comes. When we look at revival as we've looked at it, it has been primarily resulted in the conversion of people who do not know Christ. The word revive comes from the Latin, which means again and to live, or to live again. So a person who does not know Jesus Christ, they need an awakening. They need conversion, salvation, redemption, reconciliation. They need to understand what Christ did so that they can leave the doldrums of sin and wickedness and disobedience and be brought into the family of God. How many of you are fit that, fit that condition? Good. You're not saved? <laughs> you and I will have a meeting this afternoon, see if we can't get you across the line. <laughs> but you're not in that condition. You are here because you are concerned about the reviving of life within you. And it should happen on a major scale, but it also should happen regularly in our lives. It should take place as I read the Scripture as our brother so adequately said that revival takes place by the Word of God. And I see something in the Word of God and say, wow, this is tremendous. And my quiet time becomes a noisy time because I say, Lord, that's glorious. It's mine. You have changed my life. You have transformed my thinking. I want my behavior to be different than it's ever been. And that's the kind of revival that I would like to see happen in our spirits, in our mind, in our souls, that our emotions are stirred by the Word of God, that our minds are satisfied by biblical truth, and our wills are dominated because we make a choice to change our vocabulary and stop asking the Lord to be with us. And say, Lord, thank You for being with us. I was at the Lord's Supper just a few weeks ago in one place, and this brother got up with a brethren intonation. And now we give thanks to the Lord. And he quoted, Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You know what his next few words were? And Lord be with us. And Lord be with us here in the worship meeting. That's a contradiction. Lo, I am with you always. And be with the missionaries. And so as I read the Word of God and I am compelled by its message as the Spirit of God addresses and knows my thinking and knows my feeling and knows what's going on in my life and He brings a verse and says, It's you! It's you I'm talking to! I was a little bit distressed, I must tell you. We're not going to have lunch. We're going to fast just in case you were looking to the clock. <laughs> I was a little bit distressed by saying that you want to pray for revival and start it in me. 
Will you let him finish it in you? Is it that you want to be a servant so you can be a leader? Is it just that you want to be powerful and and move other people? Or are we happy in our personal relationship with Christ? And our growth and our development and our life is so transformed that that's all. And I'm happy for God to do that in my life. That's the issue that I'm looking for. That it's not because I'm a minister, not because I'm a preacher, not that I want to influence and speak to thousands of people and see them. I want God to do it in my life. And if He doesn't touch any other life, I want Him to transform my life. But we have enemies. We have enemies this morning. And it's instructive to us to realize that these three enemies that are described to you in the text that I've read, They are described together in only two passages that I know of. One is found in Ephesians chapter 2. We walked according to the course of the world. The spirit of the, 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 the prince of the power of the air, who now works in the children of disobedience. Who's that? That's Satan. That's the, that's the, the devil. And then we all had the flesh the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as other. But God, you know, God always gives the second best news last. We always give the good news first and then the bad news. Let me tell you about my friend. And we go on and on, how wonderful. But, 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 but let me tell you the rest of the story. We give the new good news first. And then we give the bad news. And the bad news is what we walk away with. God always gives the bad news first. And then He says, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He lived loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, and He unfolds to us the glory of the salvation that is ours. That's God's way of doing it. And God does it. So we're talking about revival. And I want to look at it, the enemies of revival, first of all, in relationship to us personally, and then secondly, in relationship to the church. Because if we are not revived, our church will not be revived. If we are not powerfully impacted by the Word of God, no matter how long we've been believers, we will not impact those under our care. It's true of you. It's true of missionaries. We have had the opportunity over the last 35, 30 years to travel and visit missionaries to encourage them. That's not something I wanted to do. It's something God pushed us into. And my wife has sat time after time for hours with a missionary wife who is struggling against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. I can tell you stories. I'm not a storyteller. But there are so many sad stories. We have a missionary in our missionary handbook who's the head of a cult. And I spoke with one of his subjects. He said to me, he said, I've been enslaved for 13 years. That's just one of many stories. Just to let you know that praying for missionaries is not Lord be with them and bless them and guide them and protect them and so forth. It is involving our lives in them and understanding that the problems that we face are the problems that they face. Discouragement and disappointment. Depression. All kinds of issues are facing them. 
I don't have the answers, but I can listen. And I can, by the grace of God, take the Word of God and say, look, this is what we've learned from the Word of God. God has called us to do this. I didn't tell you, but I've got three sons. They're 49, 30, they're, what are they? 48, 49, and 50. And we've got three glorious, wonderful daughters in love. They're all believers. We got nine grandchildren. I did very poorly in math and English and a few other things, but they're 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, and 23. They knew that if I um, got one right, I could get the rest right. I learned that much in addition. But I have said many, many times that when we go to serve the Lord and care for the Lord's people, particularly those who are missionaries, the standard that I understand from the Word of God is that my family... That my family must be walking with the Lord. And that our nine grandchildren and our six children, sons and daughters in love, are all walking with the Lord. They are baptized. They're in the fellowship of God's people. And I wouldn't be here if any of them were not. I've told them that. I would not stand here. Because I think the standards are high. And the ministry that God has given to us is a ministry to stir up the Lord's people, to help them grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to stir the soil. When you look at the parable of the sower, what's the main issue? The main issue is the skill of the sower is not as important as the condition of the soil. Hear me. The condition of the soil is more important than the skill of the sower. That's where I am. That's where you are. That's where your people are. And we are sowers that we were reminded. I have sowed. Somebody else watered. But the skill of the sower, the Lord Jesus Christ, some of his seed fell by the wayside. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell on seeds that were filled with weeds. And some fell on good ground. The skill of the sower is not as important as the condition of the soil. And your responsibility and mine and God in His circumstances, His responsibility and the Holy Spirit convicting and the Word of God digging that soil prepares it for the seed of the Word of God. And so when we speak of revival and when we speak of that which God has called us to do, we should be as the auspicious group that we are the leaders in the assemblies, the ones who, who, who migrate and peregrinate around this country, we should be one so stirred with the Word of God, so filled with the message that we can plant those seeds in soil that's been prepared. Let's pray for prepared soil. Let's pray for reception of the seed. That is the responsibility. And some of those 719 commands... Those commands are preparation for the soil of the seed. Three enemies. The world around us. The devil above us. The flesh within us. Those are described for us in Ephesians chapter 1. They're referred to us in James chapter 3. The wisdom that is from below is earthly... Sensual, devilish. 
There they are, all three of them. Earthly, sensual, devilish. And as we look at this and we look at Ephesians, we realize that the description there is of where we were. That's the condition we were in. That's the situation in which we found ourselves. But the warning in 1 John and the description in Ephesians chapter chapter 6 and Galatians chapter 5 is to us that though we do not practice those things, we are stunned by their their significance in our lives. And I want to be able to put it in simple words and try to help put it in words that you can carry with you because these three enemies are around us, the world above us, the devil, and the flesh within us. We find it scores of times. I could list eight or ten times, fifteen times, of where we see it in the Scriptures. I'll just give you one. The Lord Jesus, can, uh, the Lord Jesus, excuse me, the Lord Jesus says at the end of his sermon on the mount, he said, "A wise and a foolish builder, one builds on the sand, one builds on the rock." And we say, "The, you know, the, the, the rich man, the wise man, built his house upon a rock." Builder, that's true, but that is for us too. That is his final illustration. And he said, "There are three storms that come against both of those houses." The rain comes down, the wind blows, and the flood comes up. Do you need a theological degree to figure that out? The rain comes down. He is the prince of the power of the air. The Catholics still believe that the fallen angels and Satan are in charge of the weather. I'm glad you didn't say amen. And so the rain comes down. It's the, it's the arena in which... Satan, and then the world presses us into its mold, as Philip says of Romans chapter 12. Be not conformed to this world. And then the flood comes in quietly, so silently, so unexpectedly, and comes up from within. That's the flesh. And we see it again and again. We must understand that God in His infinite wisdom has chosen not to defeat all of the, or not to annihilate those three enemies, but to leave them here for us to tangle with. What is instructive for us? Time am I supposed to be done? One thirty. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Fasting and prayer, brothers. What do we, we find it in the Old Testament? One of the amazing things is that the description of the exodus of the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt exactly parallels our salvation. Were you not a slave of sin in bondage, serving the enemy? And Pharaoh described for us as a picture of Satan. The world is a picture of, of uh, is, is pictured in, in Egypt. Oh. But there's three of them. Where's the next one? As soon as they got out of the land of Egypt, it says, Then came Amalek. And Amalek is a picture to us of the flesh. There is Amalek down there, and here is Moses with his hands holding up the rod of God. And when his hands were up, who who's, who succeeded? Israel. When his hands got tired, he came down. And Moses up and down, up and down. Isn't that the way it is with the flesh? It is. 
And it says at the end of that chapter 17, I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. There are verses that tell us we have victory over the world. How are we having victory over the world? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I am crucified unto the world, and the world is crucified unto me. We have biblical evidence over and over again that we can and should have the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last words the Lord Jesus gave to His disciples in John chapter 16. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We have biblical evidence for complete, final, and full victory. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the devil, of course, we have the same thing. Through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is a devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We have victory. He's defeated. He has been sentenced, but he's out on parole. And the flesh, I will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I do not know of a verse in the New Testament that says I can have full, final, and complete victory over the flesh. Today, yes. Tomorrow, I got a new battle. I talked to Bill McDonald shortly before he died, and I asked him, I said, How is it, brother? You're 80 some odd years, years old. He's been a good friend of mine for a long time. He said, yes. He said, it's tough. He said, I'm still fighting the flesh. I said, that's very discouraging. <laughs> He's written a hundred books. And the commentaries are all over the world. And he fights the flesh. So do you. What is this enemy that we have got? The world is that temporal society around us which influences me and draws me away. Draws me away from the Father's world. Isn't it instructive for us that we have in this verse, in 1 John, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father. Isn't that interesting? It's not the love of God or the love of Christ, but the love of the Father. If you go through John chapter 13 through 17, you'll find the word Father more than 50 times. You'll find the word world 40, 43 times. Because the conflict is between our world with its position, with its power, with its resources, with its security. And the world says, I'll take care of you. Our present government says, I'll take care of you from the womb to the tomb. And we are drawn away from that which we cannot see. We were reminded this, this week already that that which we cannot see is eternal. But it says the world is passing away. And the lust thereof. What is the will of God? The will of God is to put all my resources in the eternal to put my effort in that which is going to last forever, that which will not perish, that will not fail. And there is that need for us to overcome the world. The world has as its goal self-preservation. Write it down. Self-preservation. That's the message of the world. I'll take care of you. My money, my possessions. And what does it, what's the arena in which that conflict takes place? What do you love? You go to McDonald's hamburger. What is it that you see? I'm loving it. A hamburger. <laughs> loving a hamburger. 
And if you buy a Subaru, the car. Also, you can love your car. And if you get a Volkswagen bug, they tell you it will love you back. <laughs> and they believe it. They believe it because love not the world, neither the... I love my new car. I love my house. I love my new dress. I love, I love, I love, somebody said to me, I love my garden hose. I thought, oh, man. I love my garden hose. I mean, it's little, but it unfolds, and I just love it. I said, how can you as a believer say you love your garden hose? It's a conflict between whether I love the eternal or whether I love that which is temporal, that which I can touch and taste and handle. And it's a challenge that we face every day of our life. Self-preservation. And then there's the devil. I'm going to take a little few more minutes, just in case. You're hungry. When will the meal be served? 1.30. Oh. The devil. The devil has as its goal self-sufficiency. We live in a selfie society. It's the rage of the age. Picture of me, oh, world. You're so lucky to have this most recent picture. I'm at McDonald's eating hamburgers. I'm going to say goodnight to you, world. Here's how I am as I sleep. The rage of the age is occupation with self. Our brother said that his sister was in the me generation. We are now in the self generation. Self-preservation. Self-sufficiency. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan's temptation was you can do it without God. I haven't got time to explain it, but Adam died by faith. Nobody said amen. Adam died by faith in the lie. When I'm teaching in the seminary, I ask him, why did God choose faith as a means of salvation? But you're not in seminary. You've all graduated. College of Hard Knocks or DTS or Emmaus or whatever. Why did God choose faith as a means of salvation? Because man died by faith in the lie. What's the lie? You can be God without God. You shall be as gods. And Adam and Eve died by faith in the lie, and we are saved by faith in the Say it. The truth. Who is the truth? I am the way, the truth. And so the devil is wanting us to live independent, self-sufficiency. I've taught that Sunday school class for 40 years. I don't have to study. I talked to a missionary and he said to me, he said, I could preach the gospel for three years without studying. I said, I think you ought to go home. Self-sufficiency. I've done it so many times that I don't need the Lord's help. You can be God without God. You can be God without Christ. And we become those who worship ourselves. And the enemy is opposed to that. The enemy is promoting that. They are opposed to us living in the presence and power and the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Satan is opposed to Christ. And the conflict that takes place between the Father's world and my world is duplicated by the conflict between the devil and Christ all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And he still has us wanting to live independence. And independence leads to pride. And we're guilty. We're guilty. 
We're proud of the fact that we have the Lord's Supper every week. We're arrogant about the fact that we believe in head coverings. We are more devoted to the head coverings than we are to the headship of Christ. We have more pamphlets from pamphleteering on that subject than we do on the purpose of the church. And pride and arrogance has taken dust. And pride is the sin of which, Ada, of which the Satan was guilty way back in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. What is the arena? If love is the arena between the conflict of our world and the Father's world, the conflict is faith. The arena in which we have a con- conflict with Satan and Christ, in that conflict, it is our faith. Take the shield of the faith by which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. It is a conflict. We have moral failure in the church. And somebody stumbles and falls. And what do we say? Look what the devil did. I'm sorry. You cannot find only one inference in the New Testament that identifies Satan with sexual sin. But we blame him because he's up there. And we'd rather blame him than blame in here. The faith. Isn't that what Peter said? Peter heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. And Peter, 30 years later, answers the question and says, Satan is a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in... You need to memorize that verse. I didn't hear it. The faith, because it is the shield of faith. Self-sufficiency. And then there's the flesh. And the flesh is opposed to the Holy Spirit. It's instructive for us. The flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit. There is an activity in my mind, in my heart, where the flesh and the Holy Spirit are at war. Uh, Do you realize that? Are you aware of it? Are you not conscious of that? And the word flesh has as its primary goal self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction. You read the description of the sins that come out of the activity of the flesh and you will find self-satisfaction. Just do it. I was speaking in Africa and my translator had on a t-shirt. It was a dark t-shirt and it had that white splash. You know, across there. Who, uh, Who is it that advertises that? That's right. You all know that. And what's their advertisement? Just do it. And I said to him quietly, I said, Brother, you know, you're preaching the flesh and I'm preaching preaching the Spirit. He didn't take off his shirt, but I made mention of the fact that he was wearing a message and that message just said, do it. If it feels good, do it. Self-satisfaction. That is our society. That's the rage of the age. Take care of number one. And the church, there are three purposes of the church. And these three enemies are opposed to those three purposes of the church. What are the three purposes of the church? Worship, fellowship, and evangelism. I haven't got time to go there very long. But worship is what God gets from His church. Fellowship is what I get from His church. And evangelism is what the world gets from His church. And everything that the church does should fit into those three categories. 
Worship, that's what God gets. Fellowship, that's what I get. And evangelism, that's what the world gets. But the enemies are opposed to worship and fellowship and evangelism. We have taken worship to the Lord's Supper and we've said this is worship. Great! Why is it that we are so sad? I can remember myself reading from Luke chapter 24. What is this communion that you have with one another and you're sad? We are to remember Him. It does not say to remember His death. I'm sorry if you said your text, text says that. It's a, it's a very broad paraphrase. It says we take those emblems proclaiming His death. But we are there to remember Him. I don't think we should stop the opportunity for the Lord's Supper without a reminder. He's alive. The resurrection is not a funeral. It's a festival. And if we had a festive spirit, our young people would say, Wow, this is amazing. It's not a funeral. Let's celebrate Christ. Celebrate Him in His death. Celebrate Him in His suffering. Celebrate Him in His burial. Celebrate Him in His resurrection. Celebrate Him in His ascension. Celebrate Him in His being set down. It's remembering Him. But the enemy says no. I can remember a story by a man who was a preacher and he came to the assembly with a little girl from the home he was staying with and he asked on the right way to the meeting, he said, he said and how, how does the Lord's Supper work? Just checking this little girl, eight or ten years old. And she said to him, she said, if so-and-so is there, we'll start with number 33. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, they sat down to the meeting. And the brother got up and said, let's just sing number 33. Abba, Father, we approach thee in our stage, precious name. And she looked over and winked at the preacher. <laughs> That's because there's no life. We are ritualistic in our prayers. We say, be with us and so forth. Fellowship. Where is the fellowship, brother? I say, I, you, pour, you do the same thing. You pour out your life preaching the Word of God. You go to somebody's home for dinner with several others from the assembly and not one word is said about what you preached about. Are the Redskins winning? I mean, that's what we talk about. And the weather. And I sat in the midst of one of those long... After we'd, we'd, we'd been with the Lord at His supper, we had been there at the time opportunity to preach the Word. And we got home and they talked about the weather and they talked about sports and they talked about the illnesses. I finally said, let's talk about the Lord. It was just as silent as it is here now. <laughs> let's talk about the Lord. We proclaim it, but we don't do it. Worship, fellowship. I was with an elder just not too long ago. He plays golf four three or four times a week. Is it any wonder that the people of God are, are not flourishing? They're not growing. They're con they're, they need help. But he's out on the golf course three or four times a week. Fellowship. And then, of course, evangelism. Evangelism. We need day by day, moment by moment, to find those opportunities. I was in, the, in, the, in a restaurant the other day, and a little girl came to wait on me. She was nicely dressed in a uniform, and she had a necklace around her neck. I said to her, I said, I see you're wearing a cross. Yeah, I said, she said, yes. I said, oh, I said, do you, do you know what the cross is about? 
And I can't tell you the rest of the story. But I eventually gave her a copy of my book. I suggest that you do that. We were in another place and we, the lady came to where before she left she said, we're going to give thanks for our food. Can we pray for you? She said, yes. She said, I'll tell you what's going through in my life. And she broke down in tears. I said, we will pray for you. Just a couple of suggestions for evangelism. We don't seem to care that they're going to hell without Christ. And we have Him and we have all the riches. We're like the Dead Sea. My brothers and sisters, where is our passion for worship? Where is our passion for fellowship in the things of God? Where is our passion for evangelism? Eat more chicken. Why do you laugh? Because you know that that sign is on a billboard and next to that billboard is a cow. And that cow is saying, Don't eat me! Eat chicken! I spent last Friday in Atlanta at the headquarters of Chick-fil-A. I met Dan Cathy and I met Bubba and I met Mark and I met several hundred people And they invited me to come for a special reason. I can't tell you what it is. I won't tell you. But what happened was, when we got there, they had a passion for chicken. And they asked us, stand up and say it. Eat more chicken. I thought, this is amazing. (laughs) And they again explained to us, and they said, we are the most profitable fast food restaurant in the country. Per square foot, we make more money per square foot than any other um, fast food restaurant. He said, we have three primary issues that we communicate to the 400 people in this office and to all of our operators in the 1,686 restaurants that have that cow advertising their chicken. You know what the first one is? The first one is their relationship with the Master. Publicly, openly, they said, that is our first commitment. And you as people working for Chick-fil-A, and you that are involved in Chick-fil-A, your most important thing is your relationship with Christ. We are here to help you walk with the Lord. We're here to help you grow in Christ. We are here to help you in your relationship with the Master. Their second main goal is your marriage, is your family. We are more concerned about your family than we are with making chicken, with selling chicken, of advertising chicken. We are more concerned that you as an operator and your wife and your children and your family are walking with the Lord and they're active in church. We are closed on Sunday so that you can be with your family in church. And he said, thirdly, he said the third and most important, the third and the third one in this important list is your mission. Your master, your marriage, and your mission. And what is your mission? Eat more chicken! (laughs) But it's third on the list. Isn't it instructive for us? As I sat there, I was astonished. 
because it is exactly the same three things that relate to the church. My relationship with God, worship. My fellowship with each other in the family of God. And we have that fellowship. And I have evangelism, the poor chicken. I want to see people know and love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The same three things, but they're in the right order. As they should be in the right order as far as we are concerned. We are here for worship. That's what God gets from His church. And self-preservation and self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction are the goals of the enemy in your life and mine. They are the goals of the enemy in the church. They're opposed to worship, fellowship, and evangelism. And we can learn something from Chick-fil-A. I'm not asking you to say, eat more chicken. But I do ask you to say, Amen. You can sing hallelujah. Why can't we say it? We can laugh out loud at the jokes. But we find it difficult to get it through our mouth in saying amen. One lady came up to me and said, we're not allowed to say that. I said, wait a minute. I said, the Bible says that we should be giving, we should say amen at the giving of thanks. Is saying amen teaching? Is it leadership? No, of course not. Worship, fellowship, evangelism. They are the key ingredients for personal revival and also for congregational revival. Self-sufficiency, self-preservation, self-satisfaction, love, faith, hope. Let's pray. I'm sure you're hungry by now. You ready to eat? Oh, he's got his thumb up. Father, we're grateful to you again for the amazing resources that you have provided for us. We are rich and increased with goods, but they're because you have blessed us immeasurably. We acknowledge, we confess, we love the world, this world more than the world to come. We confess that we are intoxicated with our own abilities and capacities. We can do it without Christ, and we confess that we need and appreciate and enjoy the resources that you've given us. We pray that the passion that we have for sports will manifest itself in our worship, that the way in which we describe so many other things will come to bear upon our dependence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without me, he said, we can do nothing. Thank you for a glorious message that is transforming to everyone who believes. We thank you for meeting with us and blessing us as you said you would do through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I owe you about 30 minutes.